At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 236. This is the first episode of the You Are Not So Smart Podcast to come out after my new book, How Minds Change, is out there. It has been released. It is a real book. It is as surreal as you might think it would be after all this time working on it. You can hold it in your hands. It's printed on paper with ink, and it's available wherever you get your books. And I really appreciate everyone who has reached out and said very nice things about it. But this is also the first episode of this podcast to come out after the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that struck down Roe versus Wade, making abortion illegal in many states. So that makes the book more timely than I expected it to be, given that so much of it deals with the political landscape and the state of epistemic crisis and information chaos we all contend with every day. And it focuses deeply on how to change minds on issues like this. Originally, I planned for this episode to just be an interview with Chris Clearfield as the interviewer asking me about the book. And that's still in here. It's at the end of the episode. But after that ruling, I thought I'd add a reading of an excerpt that's relevant to this moment, extremely relevant to this moment. To set this up, this is from chapter two of How Minds Change, where I tell you all about my time at the Leadership Lab in Los Angeles, the political action wing of the Los Angeles LGBT Center, who spent years recording their conversations at people's front doors, discussing difficult, contentious wedge issues, recording more than 15,000 of them on video. And they used those videos to A-B test their approach, keeping what worked, throwing away what didn't, until they zeroed in on a persuasion technique that's so new and so effective that scientists have been flying out there for a while to study what's going on there. And the papers they've produced have really advanced our understanding of persuasion itself. The lab developed this technique through pursuing the goal of changing people's intention to vote for or against laws that would affect the lives of LGBTQ people with the hope of reducing prejudice and harm. Through doing that, they developed something called deep canvassing, a method by which you approach a person one-on-one, often at their front door, and through non-judgmentally inviting a person to open up about their real feelings about the issue, 
help them discover conflicting emotions and beliefs and ideas and attitudes which they may not be completely consciously aware. Then by modeling vulnerability, sharing their own stories, and asking questions, they listen their way to changing the other person's mind. Like many of the other techniques I write about in the book, it's about opening and then holding space for introspection and metacognition for the other person. It's a bit like certain therapeutic models, like motivational interviewing, and it's a bit like the Socratic method, both of which fall under the category of technique rebuttal. Unlike topic rebuttal, which is more like a debate where people face off against each other with cherry-picked facts and talking points, as if they're behind lecterns in front of an audience looking to win, looking to defeat their opponent. Technique rebuttal puts you and the other person shoulder to shoulder, exploring each other's reasoning and motivations. So this excerpt I'm about to read comes from a visit in which I was running the camera while Steve DeLine, a deep canvasser, spoke with people about abortion rights. And at this point in the book, the lab suspected their technique could be used on any topic, but they had yet to hit on the best way to apply it to change minds about abortion among people opposed to its legality. So our mission as we went out door-to-door in Los Angeles, success or failure, was just to record our efforts for their later review to learn. But something surprising happened. With that introduction, here's the excerpt from How Minds Change. And this is not from the audiobook. I'm reading this right now, just for this podcast. After a full day of frustration, his back to the sun and his shirt soaked, Steve finally made a breakthrough at the last house on our route. Martha, 72, says she was strongly opposed to abortion and tried to politely return to however she had been spending her Saturday before we interrupted. She said Steve couldn't come inside because of her protective dog, a common deflection, Steve would later tell me. He told her not to worry. We didn't want to come inside. We just wanted to ask some questions and hear her opinions. Martha softened and agreed to share them. Steve asked, on abortion rights, where she saw herself on a scale of zero to ten. Zero being a belief there should be no legal access to abortion in any way, and ten being support for complete, full, easy access. Without hesitation, Martha said she was a five. Steve raised his clipboard and made a mark while nodding. Then he asked Martha why that number felt right to her. Martha told us everyone had the right to their own bodies, but she had a problem with women who, quote, have one after the other. Steve would tell me later that they had learned over many conversations that reasons, justifications, and explanations for maintaining one's existing opinion can be endless spawning like heads of a hydra. If you cut one away, two more would appear to take its place. Deep canvassers want to avoid that unwinnable fight. To do that, 
they allow a person's justifications to remain unchallenged. They nod and listen. The idea is to move forward, make the person feel heard and respected, avoid arguing over a person's conclusions, and instead work to discover the motivations behind them. To that end, the next step is to evoke a person's emotional response to the issue. Steve said he would love to get Martha's opinion about a video and pulled out his phone with a clip already playing. In it, a woman told the camera that she got pregnant at 22 despite using birth control. She said she knew right away she wanted an abortion. She didn't want to spend the rest of her life with the man she was dating. She wanted to further her education before she had kids. Martha seemed uneasy. After evoking negative emotions like this, canvassers ask people if their opinion has changed, and they re-ask them where they are on the scale of 0 to 10. Sampling their newly salient feelings, people often move a few numbers. Martha said she was definitely still a 5. If she had moved, though, he would have asked her why. But since she didn't, he asked her what the video made her think. She said she believed the woman should have discussed her feelings about kids with her partner before they had sex, and that they should have used protection. In the training, they said it was here in the conversation that a deep canvasser must perform their most delicate work. Even if a person's ratings don't move, the canvasser knows people have begun to think about their emotions and wonder, why do I feel this way? After a twinge of unresolved introspection, people become highly motivated to sort out their feelings. They will then produce a new set of justifications, weaker perhaps than before. This encourages a conversation. Instead of arguing, the canvasser listens, helping the voter untangle their thoughts by asking questions and reflecting back their answers to make certain they are hearing them correctly. If people feel heard, they further articulate their opinions and often begin to question them. It's like we are solving a mystery together. Steve would later tell me. As people explain themselves, they begin to produce fresh insights into why they feel one way or another. This indicates they've engaged in active processing. Instead of defending, they begin contemplating. And once a person is contemplating, they often produce their own counterarguments, and a newfound ambivalence washes over them. If enough counterarguments stack up, the balance may tip in favor of change. Steve moved to the next stage. According to the training, if he could evoke a memory from her own life that contradicted the reasoning she had shared, she might notice the conflict without him having to point it out. It would remain private, and she wouldn't feel like Steve was challenging her. She'd be challenging herself. And if he threw his support behind the conflicting thoughts that favored the opinion he was there to champion she might shift in the direction he wanted. But as the training emphasized, it's a delicate maneuver because she might resolve the conflict in the other direction by further justifying her existing position instead. Steve asked if Martha had ever talked to anyone openly about abortion. She said she had talked about it with her daughters when she urged them to begin birth control. He then asked if there had been any unplanned pregnancies in Martha's family and she revealed that there had. He then asked when she had first heard of abortion. She said 
in her 20s. How did it come up? I knew a girl who had an abortion by someone who didn't know what they were doing, Martha said. And there it was, what Steve had been looking for. A real lived experience, one that was especially laden with emotion. Steve asked a few more questions and slowly drew from Martha a 50-year-old memory of a friend who came to her house in desperate need of a doctor. She was bleeding out after a botched backdoor surgery. Martha filled in the details and then soberly added, she didn't have a choice. Her friend couldn't turn to family. They would have disowned her. That was 50 years ago, she explained. You just didn't do that. Her friend knew Martha was more open-minded than most, so she reached out to her for help. Steve listened, providing space for Martha to tell the story at length, and then drew the conversation to a close by asking a series of leading questions, reflecting back how her friend didn't have a choice and how Martha was open-minded. He asked, had Martha ever judged her friend for what she did? Did she think her friend had been irresponsible? And so on. Martha explained that she just didn't want her to die. Then, she told us, with all the access people have to birth control, everyone should be more responsible these days. Steve agreed, but added that in the heat of the moment, people make mistakes. In the training, they called this modeling vulnerability. And the idea was that if you open up, so will they. He told her, as a young gay man, he didn't take proper precautions his first time, even though he was well aware of the dangers. He asked if Martha had ever been less than careful because of something like that. She said, I'm 72 years old, and I'm not a nun. They laughed, together. And then Martha apologized because she couldn't stand any longer. The lab was still developing the script for having conversations about abortion, so in the materials provided, there were no further instructions as to how to proceed. If they'd been discussing transgender bathroom laws, the script would have had Steve return to her initial concerns and ask if she still felt that way. He might have experimented with something like that, but Martha was visibly tired, so Steve said before he left that he believed all women should be able to choose for themselves without judgment. This moment is heavily emphasized in the training. They call it connecting on values. Before you wrap up, you must make it clear where you stand, but in a way that shows you and the other person may agree on what is important at the core of the discussion. If you've done your job, the other side will know that you aren't aiming for a fight. Your position can be seen as just your perspective, perhaps one worth considering. Steve asked where she stood on that scale now. Zero to ten. I think they should have access to it, if that's what they choose. Go up to seven. When we departed to the curb so he could fill out his paperwork, Steve said he was sure Martha would vote for abortion rights in the future. She'd be thinking about it. It wasn't a slam dunk, but she had discovered she was conflicted. She would notice things she didn't before. She had moved from neutral to somewhat positive, and that counted as change. Given time, that change might grow stronger. He checked back in with the UCLA students who were canvassing with us. They were ready for water and shade and air conditioning, and we were too. 
but Steve knew his truck was parked along the curb a hike away. As he stood and stretched, the students texted back with their news. They had completed full conversations with three people. Steve told them he completed just one, but it was a good one. Waiting, lying in the grass under the shade of a parked car, drenched in sweat, woozy and thirsty, and listening to a mix of birds and dogs and lawnmowers, I realized the full depth of what Steve had mentioned earlier as we made small talk walking in the suburban streets of San Gabriel. This is why most politicians don't do this, he said. It takes a lot more effort than just shoving a flyer in someone's hands or leaving it on their doorstep. We'll be right back after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
dot com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Welcome back to the show. If you want more info about deep canvassing. I put links in the show notes and in the description for this episode in your podcast player. Also, in the show notes and description, a link to my new newsletter. It's been way too long. Everyone kept telling me I should be doing this. I did start it. It's called Disambiguation. That's what I'm calling it. Though I considered calling it I Think Therefore I'm Wrong, but I went with Disambiguation instead because I like that word. And it's also what brains do when confronted with novelty and uncertainty. We use what we think we know. 
and think we understand, to disambiguate the ambiguous. I love that term, especially because it comes from reading comprehension, the act of deriving meaning through context when a word, phrase, or an entire essay could be interpreted in many different ways. And I've been receiving all your feedback on all the social media channels, especially on Twitter where you've been posting pictures with the book. Please keep sending that to me. Keep sending those pictures. I love that. And I've been overwhelmed. It's just tremendous and overwhelming. You never know with a book like this, because I took a really different approach to this, how it's going to be received. And it's being received really well. Thank you a lot. So many of you have been following my progress, writing the book and preparing for it to be released for years, and I can never fully express how much your encouragement and support has really, really meant to me. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. And to everyone who came to the workshop, if you pre-ordered the book, you got a ticket to a workshop, and a whole lot of people came to the workshop. It was great to meet you all. I I stayed for an extra hour and I think 20 minutes to do Q&A, and that was the best part of it, just the questions, but also just the kind of hanging out we all did. I really enjoyed that. So yeah, it's surreal and incredible and overwhelming, and I thank you very, very much. The only thing left to do here is to hand the show over to Chris Clearfield, who I had on this show back during the height of COVID to talk about his book, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. I loved that interview, and he offered to switch roles with my own book was out. I agreed, and here we are. He's a graduate of Harvard, where he studied physics and biochemistry, but then he jumped into finance and then technology and then problem solving and then into flying airplanes. And in all that, he became fascinated with complex systems and how they interact with other complex systems in ways that are difficult to predict unless you really know what the variables are that are messing with stuff, which is a big part of how minds change, especially in the last two chapters where I get into network science and how cascades of belief change, attitude change, spread across institutions and even nations. Chris, by the way, speaks Spanish, Swedish, and German, but hails from North Carolina. So I felt a lot of kindred feelings in his southern-raised, serially-obsessed, autodidact ways, and I was very happy to switch roles for the rest of the show. And with that, here's the interview. And But, oh yeah, <laughs> I almost didn't mention this. We had been talking for about 45 minutes when a terrible storm rolled in and like the branches and things were hitting the sides of the windows where I'm recording this. And uh, eventually we tried to push through it, but it knocked out electricity. And so we just decided to pick back up after a couple of days. And where we picked up is where the audio starts. Okay, here it is. My interview, but Chris Clearfield is the one doing the interviewing about my new book, How Minds Change. Now, close your Let's do it. Um, all right. So, uh, David McRaney, you were saying, and by you were saying, I mean, before the storm rolled ago, in, yeah, yeah, before yeah. the storm rolled in, and you lost power, and we had to 
postpone the the completion of this interview, you were talking incidentally about um, being in natural disasters and uh, that kind of shaping your view of trust. So I wonder if we can pick it up there. I can pick up there. Yes. I actually strangely remember what I was talking about, I think, because I was remembering that Kate Starbird, yes, the researcher Kate Starbird, um, when it comes to there's this whole question in the book as to whether or not we're in a post-truth world, right? And one of the chapter titles is post-truth. And that's because when I spent time with a former 9-11 truther, I was presented with this thing that felt almost like it ruined my entire thesis as it was forming, which was uh, why facts don't work on people, which started to be a question that I couldn't resolve because I spent time with Charlie Veach, who among the truthers that went on the conspiracy road trip was the only one who changed his mind because at least from his perspective, when I first met him, it was the facts were convincing to him, uh, which was strange because everybody else I spoke to all the other persuasion people were like, yeah, but don't, don't try to change people's name, change people's uh, minds with facts. That's not going to work. And, I was like, well, yeah, well, here's this person who did change their mind when the facts were presented to them. And it, it was one of those nice moments where it turned out, oh, well, it turns it's the the question is a lot more complicated than I was framing it. Like I wasn't even asking the right question. I was assuming a lot of things and creating these categories that weren't useful to me. It turns out, and we can get to it uh, later, it turns out that the it's more about conclusions and conclusions can be all sorts of things, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, concepts of what is or is not a fact. And there are all sorts of things that motivate us to reach those conclusions and changing people's environments and their motivations will change whether or not they will feel that something is compelling or not. Their their feeling of certainty will be affected by it. It just turns out whenever you walk up to someone or meet them on the internet and say, hey, here's a fact, change your mind, uh, that doesn't have much of an impact on their motivations, the motivations that led them to assume that that was or was not true in the first place. Right. And, and I, I just want to jump in here. Cause I, yeah. think, I think what you, I think what you're saying is there's just, it's deeply profound here. A- and the reason that Charlie changes his mind. And in fact, some of the reasons that the other people in, in their, in your book change their mind is, and I'll put it in my words, and then you can disagree yeah. or correct or build on it's because they feel connected with other people and they feel safe and, um, and their social context changes, exactly, um, or they they feel listened to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so take us away. Well, that's this, and this relates to because all of this relates. This is the hardest thing about writing this book was I started to wander into f- philosophical territory, and I would get over into philosophical concepts, and then I would start to feel like, well, no, I need to go look over here in neurological concepts. No, wait, maybe I should go into psychological con. And it started to become this vast world of, oh, none of this can make sense in isolation. It all has to be put into context. And unfortunately, the context started to look like, I need to explain the mystery of consciousness itself, which you can't do. So that's why it, it goes in many places. But there is something that connects here, which is this great researcher, Kate Starbird, talks about when we, uh, she, she researches uh, crisis management uh, and researches things she calls information voids, 
what happens is after a natural disaster or after uh, some sort of horrible event, like a, a ship sinking or a, a building burning or something where it's not clear what we ought to do next. And the go-to information sources are disrupted. Things that kind of meet out information in a, in a, in a reliable and consistent manner, like a news source, a, a cable news channel, Twitter, something like that. Not useful to you right away, especially if you've lost power or the, uh, the, the streets are a mess and there are trees everywhere. So what usually happens in an environment like that is you, you switch to a trust-based modulating sort of parameter where you, you are titrating whether or not to take action based off of trust cues instead of off of the traditional cues that you were using before. So you can imagine, say, it's right after a tornado and someone you're looking you're asking someone hey when is this going to happen or where can i find this thing or or what's going to happen next and it somebody tells you that well i heard this happen i heard this is going to be this i heard it's going to be that and if you know if it's just somebody you've never met before you will probably ask well where did you hear that which is very similar to what happens when you get into an argument with someone online right. and they, they don't believe you or you don't believe them you'll say well where what are your sources because what you're looking right. for is can you I need to determine trust right now. And then you are a completely ambiguous uh, entity to me. But if you call something out that I, I can sort of get some cues on, I can say, okay, well, that's trustworthy. Whereas if it's a firefighter who tells you some information, you will modulate your trust differently than you would if it was just a stranger. But if it's like a family member, you will base it on what do you know about their areas of expertise. If you're, you have a family member who is an electrician, and you ask when the power is going to come back on, you'll you'll modulate your trust differently than if it's the your family member who uh, works in finance, let's say. So, so like something totally useless <laughs> in that in that environment. Unless they're telling in that you, environment, well said, well said. Right. Unless they're telling you, you know, something about uh, you know the banks are are, are going to come back at a certain right. time. So this all is something that we come uh, that that is. As, as odd as it may sound, this is something that we are born with and it gets shaped. It's a very nature-nurture thing that uh, goes back to these concepts of how argumentation and uh, deliberation, how we have these uh, cognitive structures that, that are already prime for this, these sort of situations. You are it's the three people on a hill facing back-to-back kind of thing where you're trying to develop a worldview and that worldview is deeply affected by trust cues. And we have entered into an environment thanks to an information revolution that is moving very quick and is changing so rapidly and the revolution just keeps spinning that in moments of high anxiety, which we find ourselves within thanks to just the happenstance of politics and the world events that are taking place, coupled with new information ecosystems that are difficult to get our, our heads around, we often enter into these situations that are very, very similar to what happens after a natural disaster, where we start, we start yeah. trying to resolve our uncertainty and our anxiety to make sense of the situation based off of trust. Because the information gatekeepers and the people who have authority have sort of collapsed in some ways, or they've at least been right. polluted by, they also are part of this disruptive period of time in history. And so it makes sense, oddly, that... In an environment like that, people start to group up based off of trust and distrust cues. And that right. that turned out to be a very big part of what was going on with Charlie, what was going on with all the conspiratorial groups that I hung out with for the book. 
Yeah. And I, I, um, first of all, I think we should have agreed ahead of time. We, we did not, which is unfortunate. Every time some, someone said information ecosystem, we should have taken a shot or something. <laughs> um, you, you know, I mean, the word that comes to my mind is, is kind of, is sort of primitive. And, um, and I think as you were talking about it, it's like, oh, of course, like this is why it's so comfortable for people to lean into their New York Times or Fox News or kind of whatever it is they lean into. Because as you just said, we are in this high anxiety state and there are these kinds of, I mean, it feels like there's these information voids, even though paradoxically it's it's kind of information abundance. It's totally information abundance. By. That's true. But but that's also what happens, say, after a natural disaster. It's like it's there's information coming at you from every direction and you yeah, you're, well you're, said. you're like, oh, I need to determine how much of this I can I can disregard and how much of this I should pay attention to. And then of that which I pay attention to, how much of it you're into a, a a rumor ecosystem where rumors become pretty valuable all of a sudden. And that's, you know, the, the typical afternoon on Twitter is something like that. <laughs> and, right. and so it feels good to say, well, you know what? I trust this group of people. I want to hang out with that group of people or, or like you said, lean into a, a source that you could, that you have traditionally depended upon. And this is the dress. I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at my notes um, and, and, uh, the the researchers call this substantial uncertainty, and the oh, brain yeah. uses its experience to create illusions of what ought to be there but isn't. And yeah. you know the the thing about the the dress that was so nice, and I I because we last spoke four days ago, I honestly can't remember how much we've talked about this. I don't. So you'll either. have to fill us in. <laughs> um, uh, but but in a sense, the dress is this perfectly kind of um, this perfectly because it's apolitical, because it's kind of totally. Um, insubstantial, it's actually this perfect lens through which to view the kind of the way the brain works, because we're not layering, like, we. it's not like the sneeches where star-bellied sneeches are good and, and plain-bellied <laughs> sneeches aren't. It's like, it's blue and gold or whatever the other colors are. So it's like just this kind of thing that created a lot of charge, which I think therefore gives us this underlying insight because we don't have to filter it through any kind of group or political lens. Yeah. It, it's uh, that they, I, the reason, I mean, I never thought that the dress would lead me here, but it did. And I can, I have to thank Pascal Wallace and Michael Karlovich forever and ever and ever, because they were so adamant that no, you should come out here. You should come to NYU and see what we're doing. I'm telling you, this is what you're trying to figure out, which, and I had, I wanted when I was writing the book, I really wanted there to be, I wanted a way to get the reader into talking about all the very, I wanted to, I wanted to go all the way down to neurons and build up, build up from there to really show how does a mind change? Not, you know, persuasion would, we'd get to persuasion at some point, but I wanted to talk about how a mind changes consistently second by second, day by day. And then, right. and why you would look back on your old diary and go, I don't agree with anything that this person wrote. Like I wanted to, Talk about that, but at, at the level of what's going on in a brain, and I could have just opened a chapter by saying, and now we're talking about brains, but I, since so much of the book was on the ground, I wanted there to be a something on the ground that got us into it. And it couldn't have been a more incredible gift than the incredible neuroscientists at NYU who were, who had, they had been studying the dress and by extension were like, started to develop a model of what is the underlying framework of disagreement itself, which they call surf pad because they're very cheeky and they love coming up with terms like that. Right. Surf pad is a uh, substantial uncertainty 
in the presence of ramified or forked prior assumptions leads to substantial disagreement. <laughs> and the, the, <laughs> the idea is if you, if you, if you draw a line and above the line are all the experiences that you had and also the brain that you came into the world with all the nature nurture that leads up to a, a certain moment in the presence of something that's ambiguous or uncertain, you will use all those prior things to reach some level of certainty or to disambiguate the ambiguous. And that will become some sort of assumption that you use to make sense of the world. And then when you are facing something that is ambiguous with a, with a peer, you may resolve your uncertainty differently than they do. And the dress is a great example of that because uh, the dress was black and blue for some people and gold and white for others. And if you experienced it that way, that is just what happened to you. You had no choice in the matter. It just was the truth of your perceptions. And if you were to get into an argument with someone about that, and you were seeking to prove that you were right and they were wrong, that they, they were seeing something that they shouldn't be seeing, you would miss out on an opportunity for to, to try to have some sort of um, dynamic where you said, hey, I wonder why we see this differently, and then investigate it together with the acknowledgement that with, the, with what they call it in NYU, cognitive empathy, the empathy that you can't help but resolve it the way you're doing it. I can't help but resolve it the way I'm doing it. But if we are doing that differently, then maybe neither one of us is correct, which is a very, that's so bizarre when you think about the way we argue online or in very charged political environments where that's rarely what we, what we do. And when we approach the other person, I remember Lee Ross who uh, has passed away since I interviewed him, the great psychologist Lee Ross, he used to do conflict uh, resolution with Israel-Palestine. Uh, uh, the people would meet, and he said that never in 40 years of doing that work had he ever met anyone who was interested in what the other side thought before they started up the proceedings. They always were concerned as to whether or not they would be able to get their arguments out, and they wanted assurance that that, that, that their side would be seen. It, this I this this feeling that I need you to see things my way because if you just see things my way you will naturally agree with me and in the dress situation if you argued and Pascal said it, it's he he didn't think it was unreasonable or, or weird to assume that you could form a political camp around one of these particular perceptions you know weirder things have happened in history so you would miss out on, and you can use whatever metaphor you, you prefer, uh, the higher truth or the deeper truth. You would miss out on that. You'd miss out on the opportunity to say, oh, wow, this actually, if we investigate this, this explains why we see stuff weirdly. And it turns out that the actual um, thing that's happening there is called uh, di uh, discounting the, the luminant or the illuminant. The, when something is overexposed, without our knowledge, without our permission, the brain will reduce the overexposure and it will try to make an assumption as to what the color of the overexposure, the nature of the overexposure is that dress was taken with a bad phone in a, a cloudy day in a weird angle. And it was overexposed, but it was not clear as to what the overexposure was. The image that we were all looking at on the internet, it wasn't clear what the overexposure was. So some people's brains assumed the overexposure was sunlight some people's brains assume the overexposure was artificial light. Sunlight has more stuff in the blue spectrum, so they took out the blue. Uh, artificial light has more stuff in the um, the yellow spectrum, in it, and they take out the yellow incandescent light. And the result is something different. And that that comes the surf pad. The 
the experiences that person had had right. previous to that experience to that moment working more in conditions where there were lots of windows getting up earlier versus people who get up later or, or work more indoors that had created these visual priors that they were unaware of they only experienced the the result of all of that and then that led to a disagreement and that disagreement the this was I'll say in the book this is before all the other stuff that we've disagreed about starting around 2015-16. Uh, right. It was the <laughs> ur disagreement in some sense. <laughs> yes. Because the Washington Post said this was the argument that broke the internet, which seems so right. quaint in, in retrospect. It does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> and we, um, it actually broke Twitter. Like, the, you know, there were... Uh, Technically, right. The, um, I remember the evening news in my rural hometown, like they would come, they came on us like, and now, you know, they have that kicker at the end. They're like, and now yes. the dress, like, what do you see? And then they, they argued that they, it, for the book, I, I went and uh, watched a bunch of YouTube videos of local news broadcasts. And that was very common. They would actually get like into like a kind of a, a, a tiff. They would just be like, are you crazy? Of course it's this way. What's wrong with you? And so good. So it's a great, uh, it's such a great example of, of surf pad and that you can, there's no difference between this and having a political disagreement where your life experiences, your values, your motivations, the culture that you've come up within, the arguments you've had leading up to this moment, the, the camp that you find yourself within and all the motivations that go with that lead you to, without your permission, without your knowledge, arrive at these emotional reactions to certain issues and whenever you that happens you start to go on a sort of cherry picking evidence hunt and we see it whatever is happening now is going to be a thing whether currently as we're recording this there's debate over gun control uh, previous to this it was there were all sorts of things uh, immigration and a million other issues the insurrection whatever it is you often you have to have this it, it's so difficult to do this but you need cognitive empathy for the fact that the people on the other side of this disagreement can't help but yeah. feel the way they feel about it. And if you enter into yeah. a dynamic where you want to win and they and, and you want them to lose and you want to win and they do the same thing, you will both miss out on an opportunity to discover that maybe you're both right in some ways and both wrong in some ways. And that's something that I push for all throughout the, the book. Well, and I want to, and we talked a little bit about this offline, but I want to bring this into the context of the work I do, which is not in, I mean, it's in small p political context, but it's all around, I work with leaders and leadership teams who are changing how their organizations work. And um, the, the phrase that I often use is, I call it practical empathy, which mm. I mean, it's kind of very similar to what we're talking about, which is just like, you know, we're I'm often in a situation where a leader is frustrated because the people that they work with, the people that they're trying to get to change are resisting their change. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I talk about is just like, Hey, like resistance is really useful. Like a lot of the changes that you have had to weather in your career have been kind of dumb. And so <laughs> like when we're resisting a change, you know, what we think is, man, the person that's trying to impose this on me, they just don't get it. They don't get my work. They don't understand like, you know, the complexity of my job or they don't understand the pressure I'm under or just they're asking me to do something and I don't like it. And so, you know, we don't experience what we do as resistance, but when someone's doing it to us, it's like, man, they're resisting, they're obstructionist. And it's like, well, they're just like us on the mm -hmm. inside. Right. So, so if you just take a step back, um, 
you can then sort of start to get curious about it and like, mm-hmm. oh, well, what what is going on here? What is, you know, what are their underlying beliefs? What do they see that I'm I'm not seeing? And I think actually, you know, we the the way that I work is very similar to um the the discussion you have um, around street epistemology, which is just That's like so cool. I, I, again, don't lose your thought, but the thing that pops in my head is like, see, <laughs> like it just makes me wish I'd, I'd talked to you before I finished the manuscript because there are every time I see it that someone who is doing work in a in a way they're trying to resolve disagreements or they're trying to facilitate argumentation and deliberation, it ends up being some of the same truths emerge and in the, in the yeah. and we talked about this last time and that's just that's because brains work a certain way and yes and therefore what if you a b test things you will come out with similar processes please continue well you know you 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 introduced me to the phrase in the book naive realism mm. which is this belief that um you know, we have a privileged view of the world. What we see is actually is actually what's going on. And I think what um, I'll say two things about that. One is what my training personally, as I've built up my skills and my ability to do this work, supporting organizations as they change, supporting leaders as they change. The first step is to um, stop trying to collapse different perspectives in a kind of you know, stop trying to force symmetry, right? Mm. Stop trying to like find the capital T truth and start to recognize that different people have different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing that that kind of comes to mind as I think about how this work gets, ex- it's how these ideas get their texture in, in, you know, the work that I encounter lots of people doing every day. Like people and organizations are trying to do this all the time. And for me, that ends up being a little bit less abstract than, you know, these big political discussions. Uh, here's something that's very close to what you're talking about. When they tried to replicate the dress, they did it with, by, by doing it with socks and Crocs. And anybody who's listened to, to my podcast has heard the socks. I did two episodes about it because it blew my mind. Uh, for anyone who didn't hear that, what they what, what, the very the short, shortest shortest version of that is they replicated the dress by taking socks and Crocs. And they took a pair of pink Crocs and white socks and they illuminated them in very, very uh, green overexposed light, which means that the Crocs did not reflect back any green light and the socks reflected back a bunch of green light. So when you look at a photograph of this, some people will see that image and they will see gray Crocs and green socks. And some people will see pink Crocs and white socks. And the reason they see it differently is because the older you are, the more experience you've had with socks, they're always white. And since they got the illumination at just the right level so that it's overexposed and some people will try to subtract the green. And when you do that, the brain's like, oh, I'm subtracting green, which means the actual color here is pink and it adds it all in and you have no idea you're doing this. But the thing that is related to what you're saying is one group of people like, because the actual Crocs are pink and the socks actually are white. So one group of people, they're seeing the truth of the image. And another group of people, they're seeing the truth of what the actual object was before it was photographed. So you have two truths here and they're not actually 
in competition, really. They're right. both true. And so you would, and you would never g- get any benefit from understanding that or knowing that or learning why you see it differently if you tried to con- fight in a way that only one of those two truths gets to win. Yes. And I think that, you know, so SurfPad is, is, there's a deep evolutionary component to SurfPad, right? And, and that's all about, um, what's adaptive, what's adaptive in different contexts. And that's a big lens through how I think about my change work. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm usually working with people who are senior leaders in success, like in, in big successful organizations and advocacy is adaptive, right? They got to their position because they built a career where they were able to come up with solutions for problems you know, often technical problems, right? I work with a lot of people who are engineers, lawyers, um, you know, software people, like people that have a kind of technical core, like expertise core to their work. And for their whole career, they've been rewarded for coming up with solutions and then advocating for those and then getting those put in place. But at some point, when you switch to a problem of a certain scope or scale, particularly one that involves other people having to change, now all of a sudden that skill of advocacy is maladaptive, at least overexpressed. You need this balance of, and I'm not the first person to, to argue this in a management context, but you need this balance of advocacy and inquiry. And you need to be able to, you know, I, the metaphor I often use is like, it's like you're throwing a stone into a pond and the, the, you've got to have a little bit of a stone to throw in the pond, but if you throw too big of a stone in the pond, boom, there's no pond left. If you throw too small a stone into the pond, you know, it doesn't have any impact. So what you want to do is you want to throw a stone into the pond and then get curious about people's reactions. You want to get curious about what lands for them and what are they interested in? And, and, and that to me is where, where the, the kind of bridge to um, the street epistemology comes from where you know, there's not really like, there's no advocacy there kind of, but by design, but the, the curiosity is around, well, what are people's experiences and what are their reactions? So in the, in the organizational context, it might be, you know, here's what I'm seeing is the problem. What are you seeing? And then you're off and running in this kind of collaborative way. And, and yeah, so take it away with street epistemology. Oh, I just dig this so much. I just dig what you're saying so much. The, I mean, cause the thing, and I didn't understand this going into this project, it's something that came as I, you know, the way the whole book was, I started out really assuming one thing about how brains work and then, and then learning over time. Okay. It's a, it's a bit different than that. And then eventually find finding all these different um, activist groups and, and groups who are actively attempting to create persuasion techniques that, that work well. And many of them like don't even like to be that terminology. Persuasion kind of gets to be a dirty word at some point. Um, because many of them are facilitating uh, the the concept of helping people investigate their epistemology, which is street epistemology just puts it right out there in the name. And the reason, I mean, it's like, um, I saw a report today that uh, Ivermectin, it was on uh, Twitter, that uh, a new study shows that Ivermectin um, definitely does not help with COVID. And the very first comment was like, well, good luck telling that to anybody. The, the, no one, they're going to show this to people who believe that and it's not going to matter. These facts aren't going to change their mind. And the, it seems mysterious and weird and frustrating, but the, if you would, the, the reason that those facts might not land with some people is 
is and that they do land with you should be mysterious and something you want to investigate. The reason those facts aren't landing is because clearly there's something else at play. It has nothing to do with whether or not they, the, the, the evidence alone, the facts by themselves are these sort of inert, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, information objects that is it's what you bring to the information object that in psychology, they call this elaboration, which is, you know, you, yeah. you, that, that's something they talk a lot about in, in um, the elaboration likelihood model, clearly, uh, because if you try to sell somebody, as they were explaining to me, you try to sell them soap and you tell them it's you, this soap smells like flowers. Uh, that's just a fact in and of itself. But for some people, they're going to think, I would love to smell like flowers. Please give me some of that. And others will say, I do not want to smell like flowers. I do not want this. So that that's the elaboration that takes place after the fact is 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 put forth. Same thing is happening with ivermectin. Like there's a reason, there's a motivation as to why this person might uh, refuse to accept that evidence versus another person who's like, yeah, of course. I was telling people it's forever. Ivermet- that forever. That stuff doesn't work. That, that's horse goop. So the... But ask yourself, why are you so quick to to certainty? Why does that seem to land for you? And why would for another person? Why would another person resist that to the point that they might actually get upset? And street epistemology is a way to approach people where the object in the the, the goal is to help the other person explore the reasoning process that leads to certainty or the lack thereof. And right. it it's I spent so much I I actually did one of the 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 most like beautifully stereotypical thing that actually journalists never actually do, but I did get to do this where I hid in a bush with a microphone. And I, I love that part. I just <laughs> I, that was just the best. <laughs> I actually did. Like I got one of his uh, AirPods and, and he had the other, and so I could listen in. And I hid in a in a bush just so I wouldn't interrupt the conversations. And um, the great Anthony Magnabosco, uh, who is the probably the biggest advocate for street epistemology uh, just approached strangers on a college campus and invited them to explore their beliefs. And I, I had seen him do this before, but I'd never seen it so raw and, and unfiltered as, as it was then. And it was incredible. So street epistemology is in the, in the book. I talk about deep canvassing, street epistemology, uh, smart politics, motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy. There are many, many models that use a similar thing. Lots of them in therapeutic frames because right. ther- therapy, all of the therapy is a place where you go to investigate what are the motivations behind your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. But you can also do this in a situation where you're trying to determine if something is a, a, a good or bad belief or it's true or false. Uh, there's a billion mental constructs that go together into what we would consider changing your mind. I try to reduce it in the book down to something that we could to talk about easily, which is our beliefs, attitudes, and values. Beliefs being uh, estimations of whether or not something is or is not true, information encoded in the brain. Um, an attitude is an evaluation of something is good or bad, positive or negative. And a value is where you would position something in the sort of a hierarchy of where you should put your your effort or your uh, resources. And moving something around in any of those domains counts as changing someone's mind. If you make something more or less certain or you make something uh, more bad, less good, if you uh, move some, a value up and down, that's changing a mind. And oftentimes, since these things are all connected, one will affect the other two and, and they all play together. So the, and, and that's one of the things that often gets in people's way. Like if you are trying to change someone's mind, it's important to articulate to yourself, which of those three things is it more 
in the domain of if I was trying to, to like if if you say uh, I don't like this plan that my business that, that my company has put forth, it can feel like that's a belief, and you want to affect that person's belief that that is true. But really, what they're expressing is an attitude. They have a negative affect. They have a negative estimation of something, and the to change someone's attitude is not necessarily the same as changing their belief on something. But all these techniques will work. You just have to tweak them a little bit depending on what it is you're trying to affect. Street epistemology, they've spent years doing this. They've done lots of A-B testing, uh, hundreds and hundreds of conversations. They record them. Uh, they pick them apart afterward. During it, they'll get on Discord and play it live, and you'll get this sort of running feed if you're not um, if you're just uh, watching on. But if the person who's doing the actual interaction will then be able to interact with that feed later. I sort of imagined it while I was there. It's like it's almost like they have a they're wearing a toga and they have acolytes walking around with them, but they're virtual. It's very cyberpunk and cool. the The way it works is, uh, and this is something that had to be uh, iterated on forever. But the the street epistemology works in uh, steps. The first step is to establish rapport, uh, which is something we were talking about earlier. That's that trust environment that you want to have. The same right. thing, you know, if you have a dinner party with people who, you, there's some people, you, we all have friends who we know we disagree with on all sorts of things, but it's okay because we trust them and we want to hang out with them. They'll, they could go on our zombie survival squad. It's cool. Uh, and we just, it's nice to argue with them. Sometimes they change your mind. Sometimes you change theirs. There's, utility in the disagreement. You have to establish a certain level of rapport with a person to gain access to that utility of disagreement. And we are geared to pick up on cues that will illustrate that to us intuitively. Like we, if you say anything to a person that can be interpreted or you demonstrate them to them something that can be interpreted as you should be ashamed for what you think, feel, or believe, well, that's it. It's over with, right? Because you, you now you're risking ostracism. You're risking shame in a way that will maybe be a, a uh, mark against you that you're not interested in that sort of interaction. So you want to establish and, rapport. And it's counter to safety, which is which is what you and I, I think one of the threads in the book, but you and I also talked about it, like safety, it, you need safety to create the conditions for change yeah, um, yeah, I, in this way. We, we are social primates. We're ultra social primates who most of our success came from working as a group toward group goals. And you can work toward goals together in a way where you don't necessarily agree on everything. And, and you have different tastes and different experiences and different attitudes. And you can, that can become a feature, a great grand feature instead of a horrible bug that it seems that we often are worried about it being right now. That it's this idea that the truth is dead and, and we're never going to agree on anything anymore. Yeah, the first step is establish rapport, assure the other person you're not out to shame them in any way. In street epistemology, you clearly, transparently ask for their consent. You, you say yeah. up front, this is what we're going to do. Can I, can we, how would you feel about exploring your certainty and exploring how you feel about a certain issue and seeing whether or not you might want to change your mind about it? And there, and it's, it's incredible. Most people usually will say yes to that. And then, um, since they're, uh, framework is built mostly on fact-based claims. That's the next thing you do is you ask for a very specific claim related to the topic, and then you confirm that claim. You repeat it back in, in, uh, in, in your own words first to ask to see if you've done a good job summarizing. That demonstrates that you really are listening. And then when they're satisfied, 
you then clarify their definitions so that you're not um, using your terminology, using their terminology. Very important because you could, uh, you oftentimes aren't even having the conversation you think you're having if the other person has a completely different uh, construct or surrounding a certain concept. I think in the book I say uh, like politics for some people is is very uh, you know civics uh, textbook version of politics where other people have a more uh, smoke-filled room where people are planning to uh, divvy up the world over golf later. So you want to make sure you get your your terms clarified. Then you ask for a numerical measure of confidence. That's true in all of the frameworks. Sometimes that's just for research purposes, but other times it's just as how, so the other person can gauge your reaction. Strangely, that's what I was told by uh, Callan Brockman. This t- typically is what happens. They're the researchers who study deep canvassing. Like if you ask a person how they feel about um, gun control, for example, and you say like, uh, where are you at? Like a one or a 10, maybe something even worse than that. Um, like, how do you feel about the war in Ukraine? And the person, and you're like, 10 is, I think Russia's do is right. And one is, I think Ukraine is right. And they give you like a seven. Mm-hmm. If you, they're watching to see how you react to that, because this mm. is another opportunity for you to shame them and then, and point a finger right. and then ostracize them. So ask for their, a numerical measure of their confidence in their claim. It, serves several purposes. The main thing though, is that it's going to give them a lattice by which they can uh, metacognate, think about their own thinking. And you're going to be the person who guides them through that metacognition that's about to take place. So you, after you get that numerical measure, you ask for reasons they have to hold that level of confidence. And then they will come up with reasons. We're very good at coming up with reasons. In psychology, reasoning is just coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe that you would consider justifiable to your trusted peers. And then once they've given you a reason, it may not be the actual reason. We discussed this uh, before the storm, which was, you remember there, I think we were, we were telling you a story about someone who, uh, they had an employee who quit because, and they said the yes. reason they quit was because they didn't like the parking. Parking situation was awful. Yeah. And, and they were like, no one else has ever complained about the parking. And then they like got very concerned about, is the parking bad? Should I work in the parking? And I remember telling them like, that person quit for reasons they may not even themselves be able to articulate. Correct. But the most Correct. salient thing was the parking. It's like uh, when people complained about the Transformers movies, saying that there was just too much CGI. But then, like you know, <laughs> but then they watch the Avengers movies, and there's just as much CGI. Sometimes it's not even as good as the Transformers CGI. So clearly, the CGI wasn't the problem with the Transformers movie. It was something that's difficult to articulate and not quite as salient, which is these storytelling. I think think we just got a real lens into David McCraney's uh, brain (laughs) with that, with that metaphor. (laughs) And so, so that's like, that's very typical. Like someone who is an anti-vaxxer, whether pre COVID or after COVID may tell you the reason that they are against vaccines is, and then they give you these bullet points and it could be all sorts of things, but the, real reason that they are against it may be something they aren't even aware of. This is called the introspection illusion in psychology. The antecedents of our emotional states, the antecedents of our attitudes are often something that we can't introspect upon. We can't, they're not available to us. And that's one of the reasons therapy is a thing to, to, to discover that the reason you actually are against vaccines is that you are, uh, have a, a major distrust of authority. Plus you don't like the idea of losing your agency, especially when it's related to the care of your child. And also you don't understand the the science behind the thing and you have a distrust of doctors and they're going to put all that, all of that is going to be put into a needle that's going to physically harm your child. That's why you're actually against it. That's very unlikely something you're going to produce as a reason. What you're really going to say is 
one of the thousands of bullet points that people put forth as the reasons behind it. That's one that the CDC had such a problem with these fact-based approaches of showing people all the reasons why vaccines were safe. In the research, when they would do that, people would come out of it less likely to get vaccinated because they all they had done the entire time was privately counter argue against your points and then they came out of that with more arguments against it than they had going in which is why they that's one of the elements of the backfire effect so in the in street epistemology you 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 ask their reasons but you're aware of the fact that might not actually be the true reason and hopefully in the course of all this you're going to get all the way back in the processing chain to what that reason is so you ask them what method they're using to judge the quality of that particular reason. And then for the rest of the conversation, you're going to focus on that method that you're using. Like, how did you determine that's a good, that's a good reason to feel the way you feel? Because what's really happening is they are on their own, on their side of the conversation, without you trying to copy and paste your own reasoning into it. They're starting to maybe for the first time discover what is motivating their reasoning process. And you just let the conversation play out from there. You listen, you summarize, you repeat, you engage in, as they say in psychology, non-judgmental, compassionate listening. And uh, by the end of it, you'll just wrap up and wish them well. And and just that, and all of these techniques use something similar. As unbelievable as it is, that in and of itself often moves people around because what's happening is they are introspecting in a way that they need guidance to partake in. And once they've done that, it's almost impossible not to think about something that you think, feel, or believe in that deep of a way without realizing, hmm, I should rethink this. Or maybe some of this is received wisdom, or maybe I haven't considered all the viewpoints on this. And I've never at any point do I feel like you are making me think these things. This is happening internally. I am processing it. I am producing these this elaboration that wasn't there for me before. I'm just struck in this moment, because I'm, I'm thinking about my work and I'm thinking about what you're saying and I'm thinking about the world we live in now. And, you know, what I wonder, I have a fantasy that this kind of um, conversational ground for elaboration used to be a lot more common than it is now. And I don't have any evidence for that to support that fantasy, but I'm just thinking about my own life and, you know, the amount of time I spend moving from one thing to another, I mean, the way, I mean, I don't really consume a lot of news because it affects my mental health, but the way I do consume news when I do from time to time, um, you know, I, my, the fantasy I'm, I'm having is that um, not that primates used to live a life of leisure, but they used to live a life that was more social than our, than the life that we live now. And so I wonder if some of what is, um, lost today is um, just this this really um, yeah this really human human level interaction that we just uh, don't have as much of now and so we don't have these opportunities for elaboration and reflection because we are always reacting and responding and we are in this information abundance mm-hmm. landscape I don't know I'm making this up now what do you what do you think I have about that? I have a lot of thoughts on that I'll try not to to talk for 20 minutes straight again, but this is where I'm at on this. I, cause I, I spent a lot of time, I've spent so much time thinking about this, but I've also spent so much time asking people who know a lot more about this and have made it yeah. their life goal to understand it. And I'm trying to defer to their expertise. One person in particular, Tom Stafford is, uh, 
he's been extremely helpful in, uh, when it came to to sort of uh, coalescing all my thoughts, condensing all this, irising in on it. He, um, something that I, one of the things I have to pay penance for in this new book is that for years and years, this, uh, so it's the work of Tom Stafford and the work of Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, the interactionist model and the truth wins model. These are the two things that, that are sort of the peanut butter and chocolate of my own comeuppance. I used to tell people that we were flawed and irrational. And when I was asked, uh, you know, one of the incepting moments of the whole book was I had somebody asked me if you could, how to change their father's mind about a conspiracy theory that he believed in. And I told him that you couldn't do it because I was still in that camp that many of us still are. Uh, and I never liked it. I didn't. And I started to eagerly accept opportunities to question my own belief in that regard. And, and it came in these two places when it comes to whether we're flawed and irrational, the Mercier and Sperber interactionist model demonstrates that it's quite rational to resist changing your mind in certain ways and that um, there's nothing flawed taking place when a person produces biased and lazy arguments because it saves cognitive labor. The idea is that, as you're alluding to, we would we are built to enter into, we evolved to reach consensus, whether it's facts or moral ideas, right and wrong, whether it's just like what movie we're going to go watch, the idea is that we will talk it out. We'll do this sort of um, 12 angry men thing. And uh, groups that did a better job of doing that by producing and evaluating their arguments and reaching communal goals, they outsurvived the ones that didn't. And so selective pressure has led to this innate psychology we, we carry with us to attempt to persuade others or attempt to produce arguments in those situations. But the cognitive systems that produce arguments are different from the ones that evaluate arguments. The idea being everyone produces very easy, lazy, biased right. arguments because you want them to be as much from your perspective as you can make them because that utilizes your unique perspective, utilizes your unique experience. And hey, you know, if you've been, you're the kind of person that's been uh, in a bunch of bear attacks, I want you to be against going in certain places because you say like, hey, right. there could be bears there. <laughs> and someone else is like, hey, I've... I've been there many times. Or I've never had a bear. I want, I want to have the combination of your two biases at play. And then you, you produce the lazy argument first because the idea is that everyone will produce all of their arguments together and it in the, in, we'll save all of our cognitive labor for the, for the 12 angry men thing that takes place in the group as we sort all that out and evaluate it. There's great research where people are tricked into thinking that their own arguments are other people's arguments. And when right. they when they when they think they're other people's arguments, they find all the flaws in their reasoning, uh, which they couldn't find before. And all you have to uh, the only thing that changes is whether or not you tell them it's their argument or somebody else's. And if it's your argument, you'll defend it. If you think it's somebody else's argument, you'll find all the flaws in it. It really demonstrates the two systems. When it, the other side of my comeuppance is that when uh, most of the stuff I've I talked about, and you are not so smart, and you are now less dumb, and on the podcast for years. Uh, and many other people who've written about these things, uh, many other books in pop psychology about irrationality, and they, we were all pulling from a pool of studies that were done on individuals. And they might have been done on lots of individuals, but the actual yes. research is done in, with people in isolation. And in isolation, you're using that one cognitive process, and it produces lazy and biased reasoning. But as Tom Stafford has demonstrated to me many times, like 
you can take those same studies and then let people sort them out, sort out the questions as a group, and you get a com- much better uh, uh, success rate. And I started testing this out in lectures, and I didn't. I mentioned it a little bit in the book, but like I really, I wanted to talk about it a lot, but it just felt a little too like, hey, by the way, I do lectures, hire me, kind of stuff. I didn't want to put that in there. So, but I've I've seen listeners, listeners, David does lectures. (laughs) So if you or your organization or your team or your leadership team would feel like you would benefit from a deeper dive into this stuff, he will do a lecture for you. He will. Customize it so it really helps you uncover your deeper truth. Yeah, yeah, go, yeah. go on, David. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, sorry. no I, I, totally okay. Um, here's something that I have done in <laughs> lectures several times, and it uh, it always works, and it's amazing. This all based off of the Tom Stafford stuff and the interactionist model stuff. Is I take something from the cognitive reflection task. This is something that was made popular by. Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow, he took one of the questions out of it. That's the, the bat and ball problem that people are familiar with. I, yeah. I take a different thing from it because there's several in there. And what I will do is I usually I have people play a cognitive uh, – I play I have them play a um, confirmation bias game first, which everyone in the room commits confirmation bias simultaneously, and we all get to feel that. And then I demonstrate, let's try a different kind of game, which is I throw up the the widget problem. I ask everyone in the group to come up with an answer, but keep it to themselves. And then I ask, is there anyone in the room who sh- feels they strongly have the the correct answer? You really feel strongly you do have the correct answer. And sometimes I have people break out into smaller small groups and do it that way. But, but sometimes I do it just all as one big group. And when one person says they have the right answer, I ask them to, um, I hand the microphone over to them and I say, give me the answer. And, and then I'll, ask, does everybody agree? And there'll be a lot of murmuring because a lot of people are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And then I say, please explain your reasoning. They'll say it in some way. They'll use it, do it in their own words. And you get this collective, ah, in the, in the room. Yeah. And then I will say from the research, when you give this test to people in isolation, the majority of people will get the wrong answer, but some of them will get the right answer. And if you frame it that way, like in a podcast or in a blog post or in a book, you can say, most people get this wrong. Look how weird we are. Look how flawed and irrational we are. Look how awful our reasoning is. But that's those people weren't given the opportunity to speak aloud their reasoning and present it to the group. Right. Because when you do that, the whole group goes, oh, I see the answer. Thank you very much. And you go right. from a majority, in everybody's the majority of the group's wrong to now everybody's right. And, and that's called the truth wins scenario that Tom Stafford is doing research on right now. He's taking things like the waste and selection task and other sort of heavy hitters from psychology that demonstrate how flawed we are. And he's putting them into situ- uh, online environments. So this is the long answer to what you originally asked, which is it feels like in some primal version of this, we were better off. Like we were able to do this 12 angry men thing all the time. And the the idea being you know we're, if if we just could go back to face to face conversations we'd be more plugged into this, and so it's not that we uh, have are we're having more conversations back then we're having more conversations now than we've ever had before we're we're interacting with we're disagreeing with we're finding people who disagree totally. with us on everything more than ever we have more access than ever to other people's viewpoints than in, in, in ever in the history of our species. It's just that we're doing them in contexts where we are favoring argument production more than we are right. favoring the argument evaluation. And it seems like 
that seem, doesn't seem true because you're like, no, I, I just, I'm evaluating lots of arguments on Twitter. Yes, but you're doing so in isolation. It feels like we're doing it together, but we're doing it the same way those studies were done. Lots of yes. people doing stuff by themselves. We're producing all these arguments and throwing them a bit on a big pile. That's what most of these platforms favor. And they increase engagement at the individual level. And so Tom Stafford is like, what if we tried to make online environments where people could uh, produce this truth win scenario? And he's getting great results from it. He's doing it. Uh, he's trying it out in text form. He's trying it in like sort of more uh, Twitterish ways and TikToky kind of ways. And it turns out you can adjust the knobs on the way we interact with each other on the internet and in online environments and electronic environments and in information, new information environments. And you can get the best out of what we evolved to do. It's just that we are living through a period of time where we kind of haven't sorted it out yet. Yeah. I think that's a real, that's a, that's, that makes me optimistic. And, and you know, the other thing, I mean, I think, so, you know, you, you interviewed me on the podcast a while ago about meltdown, which is all yeah. about the way the world is getting more complex. And I think in particular, the way our organizations are getting more complex too. So as we're talking about this, what my mind goes to is, Okay, but why do organizations still struggle with this? You know, organizations as groups of people. And I think it's because it's kind of another, it's almost like another layer of the problem behind it because the organizational context that many people are in is it's not, you know, okay, you have five machines that make five widgets in, you know, five minutes. It, it, it is a problem that, which is a problem that any, anyone is capable of looking at and solving. And the kind of challenges I see organizational leaders face these days are ones that, I mean, I have a weird selection bias to the problems I see, but many of them are ones that you really actually need co-creation to solve because different people kind of have different pieces of the puzzle, different people experience the problem in different ways. And so that's where I get really interested in um, the kind of, to me, it's like this, this this era where um, our kind of the, the the sort of command and control, like, you know, the hippo effect, the highest paid person's opinion, um, which is how many organizations run their decision-making, like that actually fails really miserably because there are many, many people that are closer to the problem. And so the actual, even the, the, the kind of um, challenge of uncovering what, what is, um, the dynamics of what's going on in the organization, even that conversation has to be collaborative and co-creative because otherwise you end up with these sort of like weirdly strong signals that are just dependent on the specific experience of the people in the room, plus their career of getting rewarded for advocating for, for their solutions. And so I don't know. It's, I, I don't know where to go from that, but um, well, I, I my, maybe my thoughts the, immediately go to like, People will, will will follow the path of least resistance in the direction of their motivations. And what are you being? What are your? What is your motivation to solve the problem in that in a particular organization? Will will make a big difference. Like sometimes it's just to demonstrate that you should be the person who has the job that you have. And sometimes it's to right. earn social capital uh, to manage your reputation in some way or another. Um, I'm, I think that there's a, a, so many different ways to come at it that 
how do you incentivize that solving the problem is is the highest motivation? Like that's your goal. Like it's it's so it's, yeah. so, it's so easy to slip away from that and to to have these social goals take over and once you are in that frame like we're much more we're we're way more like we are set up to pursue belonging goals over accuracy goals at all times you have to incentivize the other side of things or you have to do it sign good i'm sorry i feel like you're about to you got an idea well no i so i think incentives are such an interesting interesting thing and i i um I think incentives work really well when you know what the problem is and you want people to turn the crank. And, and I'm thinking about mostly how organizations apply financial incentives or KPIs mm. or mm-hmm. all of the the alphabet soup of what, what organizations do to try to quote unquote incentivize people. But for whatever reason, and this is where my weird selection bias comes into play too, like as you started talking about that, I started thinking almost every leader that I work with, I'm working with because they see a better way for the organization to work. Like mm-hmm. that's it. Like they see, oh, you know, we're asking these, um, you know, here's an example from an oil and gas company. We're asking these maintenance people to to follow these long, complex procedures, dot, dot, dot. That's kind of stupid. Like we <laughs> should let them use their expertise, right? A- and we shouldn't burden them with bureaucracy. We should sort of, yeah, let them um, let them use their expertise. And so- that to me is like, there is this motivation that a lot of the people I work with have, which is just like, we're doing things in a way that maybe made sense in certain contexts, but we've taken it way too far and mm. there's just a better way of doing it. So they are, they are kind of, um, you know, not seeking the truth, capital T, but they are like, they are in a, they have a vantage point where they see, they've sort of zoomed out and they can see the system a little bit more clearly, maybe than even that they used to. One, yeah. one of my clients said, you know, I'm now, I spend a lot of time um, kind of trying to dismantle the framework that I used to enforce. Um, mm. And I thought that was a really, really interesting and, and good way to put it. That's fantastic. I love that. I, I'm just sitting here thinking like, oh, I want to hear more about this. Just, just, please write an essay so I can read it. Uh, that That's really cool. I like, I like this idea that it's, it's, it seems to me that there in an organization, like you're, like you're talking about, some people have the privilege of zooming out. Some people have the privilege of pushing away from the table and not everybody has that. And it reminds me of like, um, when a lot of people were like, there were certain people at, at companies who were eager to get back to work after COVID and there were others who were like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good doing zooms and, and working without my shoes on. Like, uh, <laughs> the, 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 but like, and the idea was like, why wouldn't you want to come back? Cause that's where you get to, you know, collaborate. And that's where the good ideas flow. And like, where you not, get to be an extrovert. Yeah. Not, not for everybody. Like, 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 right. like not all of us get to do that. And it, I feel like, um, I'm wondering how you democratize the ability to zoom out in an organization. I don't know the, the answer to that, but I feel like that's something that would be nice to, to explore. I also think about the, since we know that belonging goals will trump accuracy goals, there's some things that have already happened in, in, in our, uh, in the, in the arc of our species where we have sort of accidentally found a way to get those two things yeah. to play nice. Like the scientific community you gain social capital and and status within that community by um, ha- presenting things as a hypothesis and letting the evidence go where it may, and then uh, tearing apart each other's theories and vetting everything. Like you, 
move up your reputation, you gain reputation by being a person who tears apart your ideas and who uh, is willing to be wrong. So they, they found a way for their belonging goals and accuracy goals to work together. Whereas an organization like, say, the Flat Earthers, they, uh, their belonging goals will prevent them from tearing apart their hypotheses, right? right? So right. it's the same, same motivations, same structures, the same things that were developed by, via natural selection. But in one environment, you go to the moon, supposedly, and in another, <laughs> and in another, <laughs> and in another environment, you have, to, you have to depend on, um, on, a, on you have to use a different dating app than most people. Because you know, right, right, <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering if there's a um, way to apply that to to an institution, you know, to an isolated institution. Where you're like, how can we make it so that your uh, the things you cannot help about being a person work well together and get us closer to the thing that, that benefits all of us within this organization? I feel like there's a way to to mess with those le- le- levers in some way. Okay, so I'm going to put two things to you, which. Um, and I want to, and and you get to choose. Actually, neither of them from your book, but they're they're both related, and they'll lead us in different paths. Um, one is something called the paradoxical theory of change, and I wonder if you've heard of that. Um, and then the other thing that we could talk about is um, resistance and kind of how resistance works. So, which which of those things are you more? Are you more interested? Well, I, mean, I, lo- I know more about resistance, but I'm actually always eager to hear about things I've never heard of. So hit, hit me with this paradox. Okay. So the paradoxical theory of change. Um, so, and this is, I, I'm going to do what we were just talking about. I'm going to throw a stone into the pond and then, and then we'll see what you make of it. Um, so it, it's an essay written by this guy, Arnold uh, Besser, Beiser. I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, and he is a, he's a, a Gestalt therapist. Gestalt mm. is this the kind of school of of I'm not a therapist, but the school of coaching and organizational development that I'm embedded in um, and work in. And the idea is that um, anytime people want to make a change, even if they show up and they want to make a change in themselves, that comes with some amount of resistance. Um, and you, it's kind of by definition, right? Because if we wanted to make a change and we didn't have resistance, then we would just make the change. So there's some kind of, there's some sort of tension that we're always sitting in with change. Mm-hmm. And what the paradoxical theory of change says is that, um, and I think this goes back to our conversation about safety, but what it says is that basically we really need to appreciate the value of what is now before we can move away from it. We really need to deeply appreciate the value of what is now. Um, and once we do appreciate it, we can understand what we get from what is now. And then we are more, um, aware of it and we're more open to making a change. And, and that's a little abstract. So I'd like to, can I just share an example from my own life? This is fascinating. So there have been periods in my life where I have, and I'm not like, I I feel a little sheepish sharing this because it's not like. Well, I'll just share it and then you can you can decide. There have been periods in my life where I've eaten a lot of toast with a lot of butter mm-hmm. on it. Like at night, I will eat like after a long day, I'll come home and I'll eat like four pieces of toast or six pieces of toast with a lot of butter. As I'm eating the toast, I'm not like I'm not particularly happy about this arrangement, you know, like like I'm I'm interested in being a healthy person, right? Like I'm worried about my weight. I have a whole story about weight that I've I've, you know, lived my my life. And so I don't really want to do this. And yet here I am eating, eating toast. Mm -hmm. And so 
So at about the same time I was in a, let's call it a peak toast period, um, <laughs> I was also learning about the paradoxical theory of change. And so I was like, all right, let's like, let's make this real. So what, what is happening here? Like, what is the value I get from eating toast? So obviously the toast is delicious and the, the thick pats of butter I put on it are incredible. So there's like, just like a sensory experience that I really enjoy, but there's something deeper here, right? Because like, if it were just a sensory experience, maybe I'd eat one piece of toast, but I'm eating six pieces of toast. So what's, what's happening here? And after some introspection and I don't, I don't think I worked with a professional on this, but I might have, I don't remember. Um, what I realized is, oh goodness, like, gosh, eating toast in this way, it really gives me a sense of um, control it gives me a sense that, oh, I can break the rules because I kind of know I'm not, I'm not supposed to eat toast like this. Um, and it gives me the sense that like, you know, amidst all of this uncertainty in the world and in my business and in my life, like this is something that I get to just hold on to. And this is something that I get to carve out for myself and, and just do. And sort of as I kind of uncovered those reasons, as I, I you know, dug a little bit deeper, it was, it's just was very freeing for me. And it's like, okay, well, query A, whether I actually need to break the rules. Cause you know, I I actually break the rules every day, right? Like I'm on a weird non-traditional career path. Like I, you know, sit by myself for a long time and think about my clients' problems, or I have like deep conversations where, you know, I'm coaching them and like, we're crying or like I'm doing, you know, flying around the world, doing like weird sort of work with organizations that I can't really describe. And my clients can't really describe, but like they get something kind of very meaningful out of it. So actually I spend all day breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. And so I I just offer this because I think it's really interesting. And I think it's interesting that I'm hearing, that, I'm, I'm hearing all sorts of things pop off in my head that connect. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, great. So so ju- I'll just bring it to a close because that's what I want to get to. So th- the good news is like very occasionally I will eat toast now mm-hmm. in this way, almost never six pieces um, and, and much more rare. <laughs> and it's like, oh, like I have kind of, I have un- in uncovering the deeper reasons, I no longer need to reach for the kind of... Um, the superficial mechanism, I get to now just reflect on the underlying reasons. And indeed, you know, this to me is this lived experience of this, of this paradoxical theory of change. This is so, so that's the, that's the stone. Uh, thank you. I love it. Uh, you just should write a book called peak toast, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or the title of this podcast should be peak toast. This is, uh, here, here's the thing you are naturally wandering into the same place that the deep canvassers wandered into and the same place that street epistemology wandered into. And they both of those groups were absolutely fascinated to discover that motivational interviewing had already laid a a groundwork for all that stuff. Uh, and CBT and all the other uh, offshoots of motivational interviewing. Um, and that's because you, (laughs) uh, there's so many ways to approach this. The, the, you're talking about, what works in those persuasion techniques is that I don't start at the conclusions. I or I don't. We're not going to have a battle of conclusions. That whole surf pad after the line thing. We're going to try to get across that line and find out what are your motivations, what are your drives, what are the things that are generating the emotional reaction you're having right now. Why did you quit work? 
I don't think it's the the parking garage. <laughs> there's a the there's this old study that I uh, love. It's not in the book where they uh, they had a uh, a professor who had a really thick Belgian accent, and they had the professor in some classes uh, give people pop tests, and I was really a real hard ass. And in other classes, it was very laid back. One of those easygoing professors is like, "Hey, learn it or not, learn it. I'm just here to talk." And they would have these class evaluations where they'd say, "What do you, what do you think of the professor?" And then, of course, one they they would ask specifically, "What do you think of the accent?" And they'd say, "That's like the best thing about him if he was the easygoing professor." In the other right. class, Gosh. they'd say, "God, I, it's the accent that drives me insane." And it's just that thing that happens, like when a uh, when a person is falling in love with someone, every every little aspect, every all the little nuances are reasons why. Uh, when they uh, despise that person, when they're like on the verge of a breakup. Those are all the reasons why they're going to break up with that person. Totally. So in therapy, this is all a part of the process of of getting back to. It's so easy to come up with a justification or an explanation or a rationalization for what you think, feel, and believe, but that may not actually be the true motivation for it. Then it may be the true reason. So. In this instance, and that's what happens in motivational interviewing. That's what happens in street epistemology. That's what happens in deep canvassing. You patiently sit with someone in a way that allows them to introspect and get past that line. In the peak toast moment, that's what you're doing, right? You're you're like, okay, yes. What is going on here? I am getting these things are these drives and motivations are being satisfied. Agency, effective, effectance, predictability, uh, yes. identity. Uh, also, some extremely primal things, uh, some very uh, deep evolutionary psychology stuff like, you know, calories, uh, yeah. sal- salt, sugar, fat. Like it probably totally. is, is foundation there and then built up from all these other things that we've added on top of that as we've evolved as a species, identity and effectance and agency and all this stuff. Oddly enough, toast is satisfying all these things for you in that moment. But once you have that understanding... You can affirm those things with alternatives. And you gave yourself the power to do that. And that's also what happens in these moments where people change their minds, right? You oftentimes, once a person is given the gift of understanding where, where they're, why they are eager to cherry pick evidence for things that satisfies their uh, identity or satisfies their need for predictability or their need to lower their anxiety, they're then given the freedom to find other ways of doing that. And when it comes to values, especially that's one, that's how Charlie Veach and Megan Phelps Roper and some of the other people I I spoke to in the book, the way they were able to escape those uh, pseudo cultish environments or those conspiratorial environments was it turned out they had values that were important to them, but they were unaware that there were other uh, subcultures, other communities where they could affirm their values even more so. And they had to be given, someone had to offer a hand from those places, not push them away, not ridicule them. They had to offer their offer a hand to say, come over here and affirm your values, become the person you truly are. So all of this is connected in the sense that these are the same fundamental psychological mechanisms at play. And I love that the, you can get there via toast. I think that's beautiful. (laughs) And, and, um, and the resistance kind of is in here too, because yeah. The reason we resist change is because fundamentally 
if you update your model of reality when you shouldn't, you might become wrong, which is dangerous, especially if that could lead you to being getting eaten or starving. But not updating when you should is also dangerous. You might stay wrong in a way that could get you eaten or cause you to starve. So the brain walks a tightrope. Ch you change your mind very carefully, given a variety of motivations and goals in play. And sometimes those motivations and goals are, I just want to be held. I just want to be touched. I just want to feel in control. I just want to lower my anxiety. There are so many things that could play into where you will decide to take a step on that tightrope. And I find it beautiful that the toast is a really good way to get into that conversation without having to uh, start with some you know, acetylcholine and serotonin. This is a really great way to discuss it. <laughs> well, and, and I'll just, you know, I'll add, cause I, I, I sort of, I skipped over this at the beginning cause it was uncomfortable, but I'll just go back to it and make it really explicit. Like it's an uncomfortable thing for me to share this. I mean, it's such, which is also interesting, right? It, it feels very vulnerable to share this. I mean, mm. we have so much in our culture about, you know, eating and shame and all of this stuff. And um, it's not, like it, it, it's a simple example. It's a very facile example, but it's not a trivial example. Like it's clearly something that got my attention and that occupied, yeah. um, that occupied me. And, um, and it also, I think comes down to, you know, you talked about the tight walk of sort of change and resistance, but also the tight walk of willpower, yeah. um, or the tightrope of willpower, which I think is something that's also so deeply connected to change. You know, if we try to use willpower to change, man, can we muscle our way through for a while um, until we can't. And I think that's a, that's a part that's been a part of my story too. Hey, I'm with, I'm with you. And you know, uh, full transparency, I'm, I didn't even think about it, but I'm, we've entered us, we've built rapport. Uh, and I, you, you asked if you could share a story with me and I offered to non-judgmentally listen to it. All of those things yeah. are being satisfied. And I can now, I can also add another level of commiseration. I lost over COVID. I lost a hundred pounds. Like I, wow. I, I'm with you on this. Like every single thing I eat brings with it a million triggers, uh, and yeah. thoughts of shame, thoughts of identity, thoughts of reputation management, thoughts of, uh, of denying myself also feels like losing control or, or, or agency and, and, uh, having to eat the same thing of the predictability then, you know, what do I value more? Do, is it my health or my appearance? What is, uh, all of it comes in there and it's not trivial. I mean, I think this is something we probably share with many people. And yeah, so I can commiserate fully with you on this. And, it, it, and in, in just telling the story and receiving the story and then you and I offering perspectives on the story, it's demonstrating the very thing that I'm proselytizing, I feel. And I appreciate yes. that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so, um, it's so connected to my work coaching and, um, working with, you know, working with leaders to help them see their strengths and also to help them see what happens when those strengths are overexpressed. And then organizations do that have the same dynamic, right? Organizations have, um, real strengths, whether it's collegiality or directness, or, you know, you can run through centralized, decentralized. I mean, you can run through kind of millions of different parameters of what organizations value. And the paradox is that if you want to change something, if you want to change the way you are, the way you work, you've got to focus on 
creating safety around what's valuable now, because that's what people don't want to leave. People don't want to give up the thing that's, that they find valuable. And I think that's, I think what your work shows us in this book is just how deeply rooted that is. And, and also how, um, how universal that is and, and literally universal in our human primate way, because it's, you know, uh, you know, our millions of years of, of, of evolution and experience that have brought us to this point. You've written a beautiful book and it's, I mean, it's just a privilege to talk with you about it because your energy and your enthusiasm and the way you bring these stories to life. I mean, it's not like, it's not like we're not reading dry scientific papers here. I mean, you're talking about the researchers, you're talking about the, the, the changes these practitioners are making in people's lives. And you know, there's so much to say about your book. It's impossible to summarize, but I do think that there is, there is a through line, which is human connection matters and empathy matters. And, you know, how do minds change? Well, in some sense, they, they change when we stop trying to change them and start accepting people for who they are. And, and that's what you're talking about here. Yeah. I think, thank you so much. I mean, that's, I didn't know if it would even come across. It was at some point I had I'd reached a point writing it where I was like, I want, this is the book I want to, I want to write and it may not be what people want to read, but this is it. And it always comes back to what you're saying. I, I know that it's really hard to be a person and uh, we're all stumbling and fumbling and trying to figure this out. And by truly telling the story of another person, by really trying to get in there and, and show you what's going on with them, it's always an opportunity for you to understand your, your place and things better. And, then to spend time with people who are, they are trying to do that and then tell their stories. It became very important for me that their stories come, came through and it became uh, this infinite recursion sort of to take place where the empathy was overwhelming. When I, I when, when I did the audiobook, I like, we had to take breaks cause I'm just, it was so hard to either speak on behalf of people or to, uh, uh, there are some people in the book who are who's or there there are instances of of illustrating heinous uh, viewpoints even, and yeah, uh, I did. I don't know if I even knew it until doing the audiobook, but it it took it it, it meant a lot more to me than I maybe even was was admitting to myself. So I really appreciate that feedback. I'm glad you wrote the book that you wanted to write because it's beautiful and and you really show through and also and this is where we started the interview 4 days ago although we haven't done a 4 days straight interview although maybe we could try that someday um you know this is where we started 4 days ago like this is a book that has a deep it is deeply human and deeply connective and i think in in writing it you know the form that you write it in follows what you're talking about and and you write with empathy and you write with this broad respect for other people's perspectives. And, um, and I think you do a beautiful job. And I think every person listening to this will get something from it. And everyone not listening to this will also get something from it too. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I have no idea what to say that except thank you immensely. You're welcome. And this was a real privilege to have this conversation with you. So thank you for that opportunity. David, can I tell people a little bit more about where they can find out about me or follow me? Of course. Whatever. Rad. Um, So Chris Clearfield is my name. Um, I'm at Chris Clearfield on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn um, under my real name, Chris Clearfield. Um, And then one of the things I put together for for, um, this audience um, is... 
just a little handout on change in organizations and and how change is a cycle and it really helps to attend to it and think of it as a journey. Um, and also a little bit about resistance. It's very short. It's two pages and it's just kind of meant to stimulate your thinking. So you can go to chrisclearfield.com slash change if you want to download that. Oh, well, what a great unexpected bonus and very happy to point people your way. And thank you for being part of this, for being part of the launch of this book. I think honestly, the, the more people read this, the better off we are as a society. Um, how minds change. So important. David McRaney. Um, thank you. Thank you. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, or You Are Not So Smart. Com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. The book is How Minds Change. You can find out all sorts of stuff about it over at davidmcraney.com where I'm collecting all the information, all the promotion, everything that goes along with all that, all the podcast appearances and so on. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. The new newsletter is Disambiguation. You can find it at Substack. And if you'd like to support this whole operation, help make it better, this podcast, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but the higher amounts will get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff, including material cut from How Minds Change. I'm about to start posting it. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And if you want to support the show in the easiest way, the simplest way, please just tell everyone you know about the show, especially if a particular episode really meant something to you, gave you value, please share it and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.